0: The following is a presentation from LifePoint Church in Santan Valley, Arizona. It is our hope and prayer that God will use this message to speak to you. For more information, visit lifepointpeople.com. So, we are talking about marriage this morning, right? How, How was last week for you and your spouse? Was it good? Any arguments? You can be honest, we're all friends here. We're all family, according to Terry, so go ahead. You can just shout out. No, you can't. Don't don't do that. Was it a good week? Did you fight? Did you argue? Did you ever go to bed angry with each other? Did any of the things that were said last week cause you to think and self-assess? Maybe to look at your look at your own life. And we talked a lot about self-centeredness and sort of uh, how that's the root of where most of this comes from. Last week, we're going to keep going. We're going to keep going for the next. Few weeks in this series, and so I want to start off again with the passage that is so elemental to marriage to God's view of marriage. It's, uh, it's the single greatest uh, passage in scripture about how God views marriage and, and, and what we're to do as we look how this relationship between man and woman is supposed to be played out. So, Ephesians 5 21 through 33, we're going to read it again, it's the foundation of where we're going forward, and I just want to get these scriptures in our minds. Ephesians 5. 21. We'll have it on the board, but we have Bibles if you'd like that as well. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the Word, And to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds it and he cares for it, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. This is the word of the Lord. So there are many ways to break this down, but we're going to look at six elements over the next coming weeks, four or five weeks, and the different principles Paul lays out here. And we looked at one last week, and we're going to look at another one this morning. So the first one is this, if you're taking notes, and this is the one we looked at last week. Uh, what Paul lays out is, first of all, what is the power for marriage? And the power for marriage is, verse 21 of what we just read, submit to one another out of reverence for who? Christ. Not for your spouse, or how great they are, or how smart they are, or how kind they are, but out of reverence for who Christ is and what he has done. The video just showed him dying on the cross, how he came and brought love down. That That is why we submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And out of, literally, the translation is out of fear of Christ. Now the word fear does not mean to be scared of him. Psalm 130 says, and it's the same word, but with you there is forgiveness, therefore you are feared. You do, not forgive, you do not fear people. You are not scared of people who forgive you. What it is saying there, the word translated literally is an awe, to be completely controlled by, to be overwhelmed, to lay prostrate before the Lord because you are in such awe of what he has done for you. That is the word fear. So if we understand it there, that if I am to submit to one another out of fear, out of awesomeness for what Christ has done, out of reverence, because I am so completely captured by his love for me, then we understand the verse, don't we? We understand how this week, no matter what your spouse did or did not do for you, you could have still submitted to them and loved them because of what Christ has already done for you. So did it make it easier this week knowing that? (laughs) One person says yes. Everyone else is like, "Mm -mm. hmm. Mm-mm. Not talking about it. That's the power for marriage. That's the power for marriage. That's, That's the first one. So Paul's assuming that if you're going to have a marriage like this, like verse 21, where we're going to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, what's he assuming? That I have some sort of a relationship and an understanding for who Christ is and that I have allowed the self-centeredness problem that I have to be given over to him so I am no longer that way. It assumes the gospel. You cannot have the power for marriage without the gospel. And we're going to talk about why, but that is the foundation of, of it, And let me just say this, often you'll hear me say this is a gospel preaching church. We just did a starting point. We had a little over 50 people who've been coming here in the last few months uh, attend the starting point. And I, one of the first things I lead off with is this is a gospel preaching church. And what that means, I'm going to borrow this phrase from Timothy Keller at Redeemer Presbyterian because it's such a cool phrase. What it means to be a gospel preaching church is this. The gospel is that you are more sinful, evil, and weak than you ever dared dream but you are more valued, accepted, and loved than you'd ever dare hope to be. You catch that? Okay, All right, I was going to, but uh, the gospel is you're more sinful, evil, and weak than you ever dared dream, but you are more valued, accepted, and loved than you ever dared hope. That is the gospel. That is the message of the gospel. And there are churches that stress different portions of that. So if you're in a legalistic church, you're in a church that says you better perform or God's going to get you. Right? And maybe some of you have been a part of those churches in the past. If you're in what's called a permissive church, then you're in a church that says, we love you, you're valued, but we're never going to talk about your sin or the importance of repenting from it. Just, God loves everybody. Let's hug a tree, let's feel good about life. Things are well. A permissive church says God loves everybody, so try your best. He basically accepts you exactly how you are. And the gospel instead does not create legalism or permissiveness. Instead, the gospel tells a person that they are loved and that they have been saved. You see, the permissive person thinks it's a great deal because they enjoy committing sin and God enjoys forgiving it. It's a pretty good deal. The legalist says, I know I'm in God's will because my life is miserable. Instead, the gospel says, I need to repent, not in order to be saved, but because I'm saved. Wow. That, that should be mind-blowing for some of you here. I need to repent, not in order to be saved, But because I've already been saved, and that is why I repent. I repent out of a joy. I repent out of a deep gratitude. As Martin Luther said, all of life is repentance. That is why I choose to repent. That is the gospel message. That is not church message. That is not a man-made message. That is the message of Christ. You repent because you are saved. And when you're saved and you're accepted and you're loved, you have a freedom to repent and you begin to repent more often. Isn't that true? You know, I had a father who is an incredible father, loved me to death and I knew it. I knew how much my dad loved me. And it was easy to go to him and to tell him when I was wrong. And I was a prideful young man and I did not tell many people ever that I was wrong. When my father would bring something up to me and I knew it, and I knew he caught me red-handed. There was an ease in repenting to him because I never felt that when I said I'm sorry to him, he would say, ha, I knew it. I never got an I told you so from him. I never felt that I needed to say sorry either to get his love back for me because of the wrong I had done to him. It was easy to repent because I knew I was already forgiven before I repented. But it was important to repent Because it puts my mind and my space in this world back into alignment, right? Sometimes we can get out of alignment there. So the power of marriage, I went a little long. The power of marriage there is the basis of it. It assumes, verse 21, that we submit one another, uh, one spouse to the other in marriage based out of reverence and fear of Christ. Remember, the awe of Christ. Everything else is built on that. So if you're taking notes, that's numero uno. Uh, Numero two is Paul gives us the... Is that confusing. Paul gives us the definition of marriage, not just the power, but the de- definition of marriage, and that definition is that it's a covenant. And we're going to talk about what that means today, what the word cleave means, how cleave's technical term is to be glued to one another. And we're not talking Elmer's glue, we're talking gorilla glue, crazy glue, glued to one another. It's not coming apart. There's going to be a massive massive tear and things are going to get ruined, right? We in our first house could not find it now had crazy glue stuck a hook to the wall with crazy glue when we moved, went to remove the hook, tore half the drywall off with it. And I was like, that is some glue. That is incredible that after all these years, there it still is, totally ruined, put a hole in the wall because of it. That is what a covenant is. And that is also why, as some in here know, a divorce can be so painful because you two were to cleave to one another. You were, your lives were glued together. It's as if you had become, crazy, I know, one flesh. It's funny how the Bible got that right. It's a technical term designed by God as we talk about what the definition of marriage is. We're going to talk about that today. Uh, but we're, where we're going to be going here, from here on out. Number three, the following passage teaches us the priority of marriage. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother. Okay, you hear that, husbands and wives? Leave mom and dad. You got to leave them. And for some, that means leave the traditions. Well, we always did things this way. You know what your spouse hates to hear? How you always used to do things. Well, we did it this way. This is how we're going to do it. And you know, here's the thing is we understand this concept, right? We understand the spouse who's still attached the apron strings to mom or to dad. And he's like, yeah, they need to leave their parents. But I want to tell you something this morning. If you still hate your parents, you haven't left them either. If you still hold bitterness or anger to a parent or to whoever raised you, maybe an aunt or uncle or a grandparent, and you still, you still can't forgive what they've done to you, you haven't left yet. And your marriage cannot become priority in your life until you leave. You cannot start this new family and this new, much more intimate, deeper relationship with your spouse until you are able to leave that behind. Now, that doesn't mean you have to give up everything they did, and maybe you had wonderful traditions, but you know the things that you hold on to from your childhood which are currently driving a wall and a wedge between you and your spouse. And I want to say this this morning. We talked last week about how wounded people are often the most self-centered people. But truth is, most of us in here are wounded. Most of us in here, all of us in here, were raised by somebody who was probably themselves wounded. And so we bring these wounds into this new relationship that neither one of us have dealt with yet. And we wonder why we can't get along. We wonder why it seems so hard to make this stick we wonder why it's so hard to submit to one another because it's so difficult to get over our own selfishness so we're going to talk about the priority of marriage and what that looks like and here's the thing marriage is God's institution it was invented by God so when we come into marriage and we say we're going to run things my way I'm going to do this my way you're, you're, in, a, you're in for a world of hurt you're in for a lot of trouble to ignore God's law is to do so at your own peril And if you say, my marriage is going to be second, right now my career has to be first, my dreams have to be first, my schooling has to be first, I promise you're doing it to the death of your marriage. There is a priority in marriage. And in your life, right after the Lord, it has to be the first thing that comes. Your children can't be first. Your career, your pets, that one seems obvious, but for some in here, your marriage has to be first. Number four, Paul lays out the purpose of marriage. The purpose of marriage is that the two become one flesh. It's a friendship. It's a deep oneness to have somebody with whom you can be naked. And we're not just talking physically here. That is a byproduct of a spiritual nakedness, of a stripping down of everything else that we cover from the world. And this one person is going to actually see me. They're actually going to know me. They're going to know my fears. They're going to know that I'm afraid of the dark and we sleep with a nightlight. Not so that way I can see somebody breaking in, but because I'm scared of the dark. See, the rest of the world would laugh at you, but your spouse loves you. Your spouse is the person who can look into the parts of you that nobody else sees and love you and not laugh. Or maybe they laugh at you, but they laugh because they love you. Isn't it amazing to have somebody like that? Isn't it amazing to have somebody with which you can be that vulnerable with? That's the purpose of marriage. Sex is merely an outworking of it. And when we live now in a culture that says, no, we lead with sex, we lead with the physical nakedness to know if I'll be compatible in all of these other things. It's so backwards. It's so, from the stage I can't even say it, it's just terrible that we lead with the very thing meant to come after we've experienced and been bound to somebody emotionally and spiritually. It's the thing that we lead with. And we wonder why there's so much brokenness in that area. You wonder why there's so much brokenness in a world that views sex as something to lead with rather as, than a byproduct of the friendship, oneness, and covenant relationship that God created it to be in. Number five, and this is going to be the real minefield here, the structure of marriage. The structure of marriage is the body structure that Paul talks about. Paul lays out here that the structure of marriage is the head body structure, right? The husband is the head and the wife is the body. It says no one ever hated his own body. It's talking about the same illustration Paul uses to describe the church and Christ and the functions that happen and how it's a complementary relationship. I just had a good friend uh, allow me to see he's working on his doctorate in the Trinity and he has an entire 40-page chapter dedicated to just this section on the head-body relationship, Christ to God, Christ to the church, man to woman. It's incredibly fascinating and I look forward to getting to that section as we talk about that. And lastly is this, number six, Paul talks about the mystery of marriage. He says it is a profound mystery. Basically, marriage is a mirror between our relationship with God and God's relationship with the church. Right? That's the mirror that we see. We understand it in that aspect. I'm able to understand Christ more deeply, his sacrifice more deeply, the God who created the universe. I'm able to know him because of my spouse who's driving me crazy. Because of this person that I just cannot seem to see eye to eye with. Who we feel that we are growing apart. That we are changing. And Christ says, yeah, that's the point. said, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. And to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish. But holy and blameless. Marriage has been invented, hear me on this, to be a vehicle for your sanctification and your redemption. See, now if you could look at your spouse and be like, you're the one who's getting me there. (laughs) They're the vehicle. They're the vehicle by which we understand more of what God is doing in the world at large. They're the basic purpose of marriage is to turn you into somebody holy. And that is why it's there. It is a profound mystery. I don't understand it. It's crazy at times. But at other times, I wouldn't change it for the world. So the power of marriage, the definition, the priority, the purpose, the structure, and the mystery. That's where we're going to be going with this. Today, we talk about the definition of marriage. And and, and we'll just be real simple. To cleave is the definition of marriage as a covenant. It's that whole idea to be glued to. This idea that we would leave father and mother, we would leave the most basic relationship we understand since birth, the child-to-parent relationship, and we are going to cleave, be glued to another human being that is not our family, hopefully, and be joined together with them. Never mind, I won't make that joke. We're going to be joined together with them. And so the question has been for the last few decades in our modern culture here in America is, will marriage last? Throughout the 60s and 70s, there were all sorts of articles and reports that marriage was on the decline, that it was on its way out, that it was a passé thing that older generations did. And we we are so smart, we have elevated ourselves above the need for marriage. And then the 80s and 90s came around and we started to say, see increases in marriage, and we're like, well, maybe, maybe it is going to last. Maybe it is going to stick around. And it's really a ridiculous concept to think that it's going to go away. It may wax and wane as culture changes, as an institution, but the fact is it is divinely sanctioned by the Lord. It is given to us. Remember that from last week. It is one of the human institutions that God has given us. It is not something that cavemen one day sitting around said, you know what, let's lock ourselves up with one partner for the rest of our life. It's going to be miserable at times. It's going to be redeeming at times. There's going to be times where we just want to kill each other. But I think it's all for the better good of ourselves. So let's just go ahead and impose this on ourselves. Let's no longer for, go where we want and club whoever we want over the head and drag him back to the cave. Let's just one woman. We will club one woman over the head and drag only her back to the cave. It's not something that man made up. It's something that God divinely ordered. And so it will not leave it, his vehicle, his representation. His way for us to understand Him better is not going to go anywhere. And so, let's get to know it better. Let's get to understand it better. See, we can study the shoots of it statistically, the, the offshoots of it, but the roots of marriage are divine. And so through that, we have to study the revelation of it. And we see that throughout Scripture. You see that throughout the Bible. A covenant is a binding, hear this, public and legal contract or agreement. That's how God would define marriage. Not a set of emotions, not somebody you've fallen in love with, not the beautiful person you can't believe said yes. None of that. It is a binding public and legal contract or agreement. And as we look through the Old Testament, whenever a covenant is put together, it has these four basic principles. You ready? First is this, the parties are introduced. The parties are introduced. So Abraham, Abraham. God? I'm God. We see who is about to enter into covenant with each other. We do the same thing at a wedding. We introduce, who are these two people who are standing before you? And then the stipulations are put down. The stipulations, here's what you will do, here's what I will do as a part of my side of the covenant, right? You do this, and this will happen. We come to an agreement on this covenant, great. Then comes a list of the blessings and the curses. Should you break your covenant, here is what will happen to you. Should I break my covenant, Here's what will happen to me. If we keep the covenant, here are the blessings that flow from it. Okay? So then we see the blessings and the curses. Lastly is the vows. And the vows are incredibly important. In some way, publicly, you ratify. It doesn't matter how you do it. In the Old Testament, one of the ways they would do it is they would take an animal, they would cut it in half, they would spread its entrails open, and then lay either half at other end, and the couple getting married would walk between the disgusting dead animal and... It would basically be saying, would I be as this animal if I break the covenant? You know, I've often suggested this to married couples. I'm like, you guys know, we can get a cat a lot cheaper than you can get a ring. It's the same thing. Let's just do this, right? We'll just take the cat, we'll spread it out, you'll walk through it, boom. Bows are done, symbol has been created, everyone in attendance sees it. We all get it, you love each other. It's no different. Today in our culture, we use a ring. Some people jump over a broomstick. Maybe you break a glass on something. All you're doing is this is the symbol that says, we are sealing the covenant, right? Most people choose the ring, in case you were wondering, in weddings I do. So there's no such thing, I said this first, time, there is no such thing as a covenant in the back seat of a car. Why is that? Because it's not public, because no one's there to hold you accountable. And that is where our culture has taken this idea of a union between two people, a place where I get to keep it to myself, where because nobody knows about it, if I want to leave, I can leave. It's just me and her. I can walk away from it, right? A covenant is something public. It's a way for you to make a promise that you do not mind who holds you accountable to it. Did you know when you invited people to your wedding, you weren't just filling up wedding spots? You weren't just inviting the people who could give you the best blender, you were inviting people that you were saying to the people in the audience, you have the right to hold me accountable to this marriage as long as we both live. Did you know that? Probably make you rethink who you invited to your wedding. But because they were at your wedding, they have a voice now. They were there, they were at that event. They can say, I saw you, I heard your vows, you said for better or for worse, I realized for the last five years it's been a lot of the worst, but you cannot divorce. I was a part of it, and they have a right to speak into it. They have a right to hold you accountable. That's why a covenant is public, so those who are a part of it can see and speak into the covenant. So are modern minds. I've talked a bit about that already. Our modern mind is tremendously anti-law and anti-covenantal. Even what I'm saying here this morning, some of you have already let wash over you and you're like, let's move past that. See, a covenant is commitment, discipline, and service. Would we agree on that? Commitment, discipline, and service. Our modern thought values these three principles, spontaneity, freedom, and choice. They aren't just a little bit different than a covenantal relationship. They fly in complete contrast to a covenantal relationship. Spontaneity, freedom, and choice. There's a tremendous anti-law idea when it comes to marriage, and let me play this out for you. You see, in pre-modern times, the way a human being got a sense of meaning was from their responsibilities or obligation, like I was a citizen, I am a father, you were a mother, you were a child, you were a man, you were a woman. These were uh, responsibilities and obligations expected of you as a family man or as a citizen or as an employee, and on these, thus, honor was given to you if you did them well, Right? If you were a good father, honor was put upon you, and you wanted to be a good father. Men work to be good fathers. Women work to be good mothers. People work to be good citizens, right? You go to a park, you want to pick up your trash. You don't want to just leave it there. I want to be seen in my society as somebody. I have these obligations on me. This is pre-modern thinking. This is not how we think today. I know some of you do. I know some of your families do. As a whole, we do not think this way anymore. We have moved more into this. Modern people get their meaning out of feeling they are free from any obligation to do whatever is fulfilling to them. Well, I'd like to pick up my trash, but I'd like more to just leave it for someone else to pick up. And that fulfills me more. Thusly, I will leave it. Pre-modern people got their meaning out of obligation. Modern people get their meaning out of choice. Very different very, very different. And so as a result, when you come against the Christian and biblical understanding of marriage, there's a lot of fear. There's actually a tremendous amount of fear that sort of crops up in you. You mean, like, this is not Elmer's glue, this is crazy glue with this person? (laughs) Yeah. Holy cow. See, some of you today came in here, and you weren't even as scared as you are now of marriage that I have made you just over the last few minutes. And that's because you have been following something that you've been hearing a message that goes counter-cultural to what you have felt, to what you have even seen in your own life, to the friends you have seen, to the, every TV show and movie show you have ever witnessed, says the opposite. says it's more about fulfillment. How fulfilled are you? How happy are you? Are your needs being met? That is a modern thought. That is a new idea. That is a sinful, selfish, self-centered, me-first idea. And I'm going to talk about here why that doesn't lead to love. If you're going to get married, make sure it's mutual and negotiable. Does that sound about how our world looks at it? Make sure it's mutual and negotiable. C.S. Lewis says this about love. Love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. Make sure you make yourself vulnerable to nobody. Make sure you open yourself to nobody. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, and airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, and irredeemable. And the only place outside heaven you can be perfectly safe from all dangers and agitations of love is hell, where nobody gives their heart to anybody. Gotta love that C.S. Lewis, right? Society is full of people who have bought into that notion. There are millions of married men and women who love like that. I married you, but you do not have my heart. I married you, but I am not vulnerable before you. I married you, but I have my options open in case you ever stop fulfilling my needs. And God's picture of love is so much different. See, the world says love is a feeling and Christ says love is an action. The modern definition is that it's like something of a ditch that you fall into or that love is a virus and you could catch it. You're passive in love according to the world. You were just listfully walking through the daisies when all of a sudden love came and hit you upside the head. And you're like, oh, there it is. Right? I hope I find love. We hear that all the time. I hope I find love. The Bible says it's an action. The Bible says it's an active action. It's, not, it's something you go and pursue after. It's not a passive response. So when the Bible uses the word love, love your wife, love your husband, love your enemies, it uses the same word in all three of those instances. So how can I love my enemies Well, I can wish them good, I can do good, and even be willing to do good and serve my enemies if I have the chance? See, we often think of love in terms of what we want. We go bargain hunting for love what does she have, what does he have, here's what I have to offer, you know, sort of doesn't match up. We get into marriage and we find out that our spouse is not giving us what we expected or wanted, so we withdraw. He is not the person he used to be, she is not the person she used to be. He used to do this, she used to do that, and so we slowly pull back and we pull back and we pull back until we no longer give anything anymore. It's beyond passive, we don't even try to love anymore. And yet, isn't this interesting? When you have a child, it's the complete opposite. Into your life comes this tiny little screaming, crying, disgusting thing. And from day one, it needs you every minute. And it does not care how tired you are. It doesn't care how hungry you are. It doesn't care how sore you are. It demands your attention. When? In like an hour? Now. You will do this for me now. Change my diaper. Feed me. Love me. Cuddle me? I don't know. I'm not even going to speak your language. You're just going to have to figure it out on your own. They're horrible little beasts. And the thing is, we love them. We don't just like them. Like, we have lots of them. And we do it over and over again. And you just give sacrificially to this child, and it gives you nothing. If you're lucky, it will become rich and take care of you when you're old, but you've got to keep your fingers crossed on that because you just never know. You know, I think it's easier for a woman to love a child when it first comes out because for nine months she's been giving to that child, right? She's had the pain and that thing's been wrecking her insides and she is gone with having to pee every hour and she has already been serving and giving to that child for nine months and when it comes out, the guy's like, You know, it takes us time. My son's six and I'm just now starting to like him. And you just realize mom's been serving that thing since day one. I still call it a thing. There's such a huge difference there. But we love, we love and we serve and we actually serve first and the more we serve, the more we love them, don't we? The more you give the child, the more you love the child. And then by the time the kid's 18 or 20, he could be a complete moron, but you still love him. Your child could be a 33-year-old living in the basement that you're completely sick of, but guess what? a complete dredge on society. You love him or her. Maybe you're the only person, but you do. And what's happened, though, in those 18 to 20 years, the cycle's been working in reverse on your spouse. When your spouse acts like a baby, what have you done? The less your spouse gives you, the less you give back. The less you give, the less you feel like loving. The less you feel like loving, the less you act loving. And the less you act loving, the less you feel loving. And for 18 years you've been in this cycle and it's been the other way around. And then we wonder why so many times we see the kids move out around 18 to 20 and couples get a divorce. Because the one thing, the one person in their life that they were giving sacrificially to no longer needs them to and they look at each other and realize I haven't given sacrificially to you in almost two decades and they don't know what to do with themselves and they assume the only answer must be to separate, to become unglued. And Christ says, you know, it's pretty easy to get that back. You remember the day your child was born? Start giving again. Well, what if my spouse just, your child gave you nothing in return and you fell in love with it? Begin to give again. Because when we begin to give again, you feel more loving. The more loving you feel, the more you give. The more you you give, the more you act loving. And the more you feel loving, it's a cycle. But the world says, if you aren't getting anything in return, you don't have to give. And we buy into that. We'll close with this. Frankly, the days in which you are most able to honor God by loving your spouse the way Christ loved the church are the days in which you don't feel much affection at all. Does that sound about right? It's the way Jesus loved us on the cross. When he, Did he look down and say, Oh, good, just my body type. I can't wait to die for these people. No, he loved us while we were still his enemies, while we would spit at him and beat him. And that's the day when you love your spouse on a day where you don't feel any affection, but you still serve and you give. In that moment, in that day, you will feel a deeper connection with what Christ did for you on the cross. Now don't go being a martyr here and be like, oh, I felt it. I asked him to do the dishes and he just never does. That's not what we're saying here. There is an ongoing, maybe some of you are in marriages where you have been giving and been giving. And hear me on this. You are experiencing And you do have a deeper understanding of what your God went through on the cross. But there is hope. There is hope. The second practical implication that we're going to finish on today is this, that marriage is confrontational. You'll never understand that and know it or have the benefits of it unless you're in a covenantal marriage because I cannot be confrontational with somebody who could possibly walk away from me. Right? I cannot truly be confrontational. I cannot expose your weaknesses and I cannot be the one who wants to help you get through the areas that you are weak in if you cannot be confrontational with me. And inside of a covenant relationship, what have we said? You're glued to each other. You're not going anywhere. No matter how confrontational you are, we're stuck together. And that's where in verse 26 it talks about being washed with the water. And here's the thing. If you're healthy then a bubble bath or a hot bath feels good. But if you're like me in my story when I went over the front of my handlebars on my bike and my head met the asphalt first and then the rest of my body scraped along it and you had scabs all down your face and down the side of your body, a hot bath with soap stings and burns like crazy. A washing of water. Washing of water. But what's it doing? It's cleansing the areas and it's removing the dirt from the sores. And that is what we are to be to one another, husband and wife. The essence of marriage is confrontational. 1 Corinthians 4 5. The coming of Christ will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of men's hearts. So does marriage. Close with this story from Keller Imagine you are a bridge. Okay. Imagine you're a bridge, and in, on, in your structure of the bridge you are, there are tiny hairline cracks. There are structural deficiencies. Other people don't really see them. Other cars travel the bridge all the time, but along comes a five-ton Mack truck. That's your spouse. You're a lovely bridge. Your spouse is a big, giant, mean truck. And along they drive across your bridge, and suddenly all of those hairline tracks uh, cracks, all of those structural defects begin to bend and sway with the weight of the Mack truck and begin to crack under the pressure. Now let me ask you this, did your spouse cause the cracks or did they just expose what was already there? See, Our marriage is to be so intimate, so close, such oneness and friendship with the person that they are going to confront the areas of our life that we have ignored for a long time. Your roommate didn't care that you were a selfish slob. Your friends didn't care that you were ignorant and unthoughtful of their needs. But guess what? Your spouse does. And all of a sudden, that Mack truck comes into your bridge of a life and begins to crack all the areas that nobody else really cared. And you know, the one people who often did care was your parents, but what did you do? As soon as they started to expose it, you're like, I'm out. And you left. And your spouse is there on your bridge, and we get in these fights. And the real mistake we make often is this. We feel like the conflict in our marriage has brought us into conflict with our spouse when in reality, that's not it at all. The power of marriage is marriage brings you into a confrontation not with your spouse, but with yourself. For the first time, marriage forces you to look in the mirror. It grabs you by the scruff of the neck, pushes your face in the mirror and says, look at these things. Look at these areas of your life you've been neglecting. Pay attention wake up the problem is not with your spouse the problem is they just exposed the areas that you've never fixed in yourself the most wonderful thing about marriage that helps us escape from our sins by being as part of an inescapable relationship basically relatively speaking of course and the only thing we can do at the end is cry out to God Lord save me Lord help me and when you do that, you're at the beginning of the road to a healthy marriage. Amen. Let's pray. Invite the band back out. We're going to worship. Heavenly Father, God help us. Lord, help me. Help me to be a more attentive husband. Help me to be. Lord, help me to be more in the moment when we're together. Help me to not be so distracted. Father, I pray for the men and women in this room who came in with the various list of struggles and frustrations. I pray for those, Lord, who need you right now in their marriage, who came in here saying they were on their last leg, Lord. Would that not be true? In Jesus' name, I just pray against that. I pray right now, Lord, that if there's a couple in this room who's feeling that way, that they would come to the altar, that they would get on their knees at their seat, that they would grab each other's hands and they would say, no, we are glued together, we will make this work. Lord, the world doesn't offer us much hope in relation to this. There's a million books and as many counselors, but the truth was written many years ago, Father. That you invented marriage and you defined it to be a vehicle to our sanctification, that we would know you more, that we would understand the relationship between you and the church more, Lord. And the more we understand that, the easier it becomes to love one another. So help us in this, Father. That is our sincere prayer today. Help us see that. In Jesus' name, amen. If you want to come forward, the altar will be open for you to do so. You can pray in your seat. This has been a message from LifePoint Church. We pray that you have been blessed by it. Be sure to check out lifepointpeople.com for more information, or you can follow us on Facebook.